Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is Lorna Slater, who is the co-leader of the Scottish Greens. She's also Minister for Green Skills, Circular Economy and Biodiversity. Uh, as she's one of the new Scottish Green ministers appointed to the Scottish Government in a coalition that's not a coalition, but sort of is a coalition. We get into the details of what all that means. But first, I'm delighted to announce some more guests for the Political Party Live. As you know, the show returns to the stage on Monday the 27th of September with a brilliant first guest, Andy Burnham. These new shows are at our new home, the Duchess Theatre in London's West End, and... Andy will be a brilliant first guest. Mayor of Manchester, of course, he stood for the Labour leadership before. He may well stand again. Who knows what happens in the future? Um, He's never been on the show before, so I'm very excited uh, about having him. But I can announce today who some of the other guests are. So on the first show on the 27th of September, it will be Andy Burnham. On the second show, uh, uh, making her political party debut, the first ever female Secretary of State for Defence and now Paymaster General Penny Mordaunt. Um, You may remember her from a a very risque dare that she did on the floor of the House of Commons. And also she was in the reality show Splash. On the 25th of October, I'm very close to being able to announce who that guest will be. On the 8th of November, the leader of Scottish Labour, Anna Sarwar. On the 22nd of November, and that show will be at the Vaudeville, Anthony Scaramucci, the mooch is coming over from New York to do the political party. And on the 6th of December, the former Secretary of State for Health, Jeremy Hunt, former Foreign Secretary, of course, stood for the Tory party leadership just a couple of years ago. So what an amazing lineup that is. Andy Burnham, Penny Morden, Anna Sawa, Anthony Scaramucci, Jeremy Hunt. Um, all those details are in the blurb for this show and the show notes, and you can click on the links to buy the tickets. The opening night, of course... Very soon, Monday the 27th of September with the Mayor of Manchester, Andy Burnham. That is during Labour Party Conference Week as well. So a very, very timely uh, moment to be talking to one of the most popular and powerful Labour politicians in the country. Uh, Don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com with your bizarre or mundane encounters with politicians. Johnny's been in touch. He says, hi, Matt. You know when something happens and you think, did I really just see that? Yeah, I do, Johnny. I'm sure many of uh, people listening to this kind as well. So I was walking to Sheffield Station, and beside the lovely big water feature, we all know the one, was perhaps the weirdest 30 seconds of my life. Firstly, I saw a guy do a flying kung fu kick on another guy, which rather caught my attention. What made it weirder was that literally 10 seconds later, who should walk past but Ed Miliband? <laughs> who knows whether this violence was related to Ed Miliband's impending arrival? I was sadly too confused to say hi or anything, but thank the universe I witnessed those two things together. Johnny, I feel like we need to know more about this Kung Fu fight. He says, I don't usually, I know you don't usually take requests, but could you do your impression of Ed trying to break up a fight? Come on, guys, etc. Guys, come on. Look, Kung Fu kicking each other outside Sheffield Station, or indeed any other mainland, or indeed any other station. Not okay at any train station. In fact, it's not okay outside of a licensed kung fu gym or fight. 
Come on. Well, Johnny, I hope that made your day. I'm not sure whether it would have made anybody else's, but a brilliant email. Pol- uh, political Party Podcast. I almost forgot the email address then in this confusion. Uh, email me, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Have you ever seen a politician near or indeed involved in a fight? Um, or if you've just had a mundane experience. On to Lorna Slater, today's guest, as I say, co-leader of the Scottish Greens, who've just entered into... They call it a power-sharing arrangement with the SNP. That makes it sound sort of uh, like it's based on the uh, sort of Northern Ireland unionists and um, nationalists, whereas it's obviously not quite that. It's clearly a coalition, but they don't want to call it a coalition. But nevertheless, it's historic. And I began by congratulating Lorna on joining the Scottish Government the first time that the Greens have been in government in the UK. Thank you very much. You're right to call it historic. This this hasn't happened somewhere in the UK before, although it's not uncommon in other places around the world. And I think it's a really significant step as governments are recognising that they have to take urgent action on the climate crisis, that they're kind of bringing in the Greens and governments around the world are starting to do that because we've got the policies, we've got the expertise. And it's not called a coalition. Or is it? And when is a coalition not a coalition? Because if you're ministers, you're in the government, but I don't understand the the, the distinction. So it isn't a coalition. It is a cooperation agreement. So we did not enter formation of government talks. That's what you would have at the beginning. Uh, If you were going to create a coalition, that's not what this is. Uh, The first minister created a government with, without us uh, and we, you know they were perfectly capable of carrying on as a government without us. It was a strategic decision to bring us in, much like the decision that Jacinda Ardern made in New Zealand to bring the Greens in there, even though her government didn't need them, but because they felt that you can get more done with the Greens on board, especially in terms of tackling the climate crisis. But I think it also represents a totally different approach to politics. We are very used to what I would call like the Westminster style of politics, which is just shouting across the aisle at each other, that kind of torrent of negativity, the trying to pull down your opponent. And I actually think people are tired of that. I think they want to see something more grown up, something more cooperative, where it's like, okay, we don't agree on everything, but here's some stuff we do agree on. We need to upgrade Scotland's homes. We need better public transportation. We need to create jobs in green green industries. Right, let's roll up our sleeves and do those things then. The context, of course, is also independence. I mean, if the SNP had got a majority of their own, do you think they still would have given you ministerial positions? It's so funny because people keep bringing this up. There was already a pro-independence majority in Parliament without any sort of cooperation agreement. So we, in our manifesto, had a very similar position to the SNP, which is that we want an independence referendum in this parliamentary term. They said the first half, we said this term, but very similar position. So we were already going to vote in the same way on that matter. So we didn't need a cooperation agreement about for that. Um, so I would say that isn't what the cooperation agreement is about. Of course, we're going to work together on that. We already said we would. What's in the cooperation agreement is 50 pages of policy areas, which you know it's unheard of where we're going to work together and they cover all sorts of things from creating jobs to upgrading homes to you know looking at social security and Basically, we want this to be transformative for Scotland. We want to work with, you know, well, I guess I'm, I'm part of the government now. You know, we as the Scottish government want this to be transformative for Scotland. We want to really start building a different and better country. 
Greta Thunberg, who's obviously a, an icon of the green movement, has said that Scotland isn't a global leader on, on the climate and on the environment. Do you agree with her? Yeah, I do. I think our targets are world leading, but targets don't mean anything without action. And I hope that by bringing Greens into government, we can start seeing the kind of meaningful action that is needed. Unfortunately, as with all these things, we should have started 20 years ago. It's like it's like you're saving the count. You wish you started saving 20 years ago. But this better, the best time to start is if you didn't start 20 years ago, the best time to start is still now. Um, of course, we have to take action more quickly than we would have if we'd started 20 years ago. But the message is it's still doable. We can still meet our targets. We can still make significant changes starting now. And are you are you concerned about being in a a, 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 a power sharing agreement, a cooperation with a party that the last time it you know the only time Scotland has had a referendum on on independence, the SNP's entire prospectus effectively was was based on oil. That is an area that we disagree on. The Scottish Greens and the Scot uh, SNP disagree on. And it is written into the cooperation agreement that there are areas of policy where we disagree, and that's one of them. So I would expect us to go into any independence referendum with a different prospectus. The green vision for independence is different from uh, the SNP vision. And again, I think that's okay. One party doesn't own the concept of independence. We, after independence, it will not be a one-party state. It will still be a multi-party democracy. And I think it's really healthy that we have different versions of independence, that it isn't owned by one, by one party. And I really look forward to campaigning for the green version of independence. I mean, this sounds like the ideal deal for you because you're kind of you're in government you get to have you know a huge green influence over what the Scottish government does you can put your values into action it's far better than being in opposition but also you've got the freedom to disagree I mean has Nicola said you made a huge mistake here I'm glad you recognize the excellence of our negotiating skills um yeah well I mean that's it it's a it's a it's a really unique and interesting agreement it's similar to what the Greens in New Zealand have negotiated with the government there, and they have a they tell a really good story about how much more you can get done as part of the government. Because the purpose of parliament, of course, is to hold government to account and to scrutinize the decision making of government. It's quite a different position to be in to be the people making those decisions. Uh, and that's just something we haven't seen with Greens before in the in the UK anyway. And we know people like our policies. We, we absolutely know that from knocking on doors, people like our policies, but what they've always been concerned about is they are, don't necessarily have confidence that we are able to deliver on those policies. And this is our chance to show that. So really the ball is in our court now to demonstrate that we can deliver this good stuff, that we can deliver free bus travel for young people, that we can deliver you know, work uh, you know, as part of the government to deliver a national care service, all these things that really matter to people that I hope will create a legacy you know, in the same way that we have the National Health Service, we will create a national care service that will, you know, go down the go down the generations and things like upgrading our railways. I would really like to see European levels of affordability and reliability in our railways. That's a massive overhaul uh, and it would benefit everybody's quality of life. It would benefit our air quality. It reduces our emissions. And I think, again, it changes how our society works if we're a society that believes in public transportation is the best way to get around. So one of your areas of your ministerial brief is the circular economy. I've read various different definitions of it, but what's your definition of what the circular economy is? 
I'm really glad you asked that. My dad asked me that. So he, of course, they're, my parents live in Canada and they are monitoring all the political up, uh, goings on over here by, via the internet. And my dad asked me what that is. And what that is to me is about designing to last, designing things that are meant to, to last, things that can be repaired. Because so much of what we use in our society is designed to be used once and then thrown away, or even designed to be used a few times. I mean, I, I have appliances in my house, vacuum cleaners and toasters and things that if they break or a kettle, I don't have any means to repair. There's no, there's nothing I can open up. There's nothing I can, I can fix on them. And yet every part of it, except one tiny bit has broken. And, and I would be forced because of the design of that object to throw it away and buy another one because our society prizes always consuming, buying more, buying more. But I think that we can do better than that. We can build quality, we can build to last, we can em empower ourselves to be proud of our repair skills. So instead of being proud, we bought a new thing. It's like, I repaired this thing. And where we can't repair, we can, you know, we can reuse, we can repurpose, we can recycle. So to get away from this mounds and mounds of plastic rubbish on beaches, it means rethinking about how we spend our time and how we spend our energy. And it isn't always about buying new stuff. It's about learning all these skills about repairing. And as I say, designing to last. Why, why shouldn't you, you know, wear the same, same pair of boots for 20 years? Why not? If they can be designed well enough and repaired, keep them going. It's that old thing about the, is it the, the, ho the, the garden hoe or something where it's got a different handle and a different, or the spades, it's got a different handle and a different shovel, but it's still the shovel of my granddad. Oh, Trigger in Only Fools and Horses. I've had this broom 30 years, but it's had 15 new handles and 20 new heads or something. That's it, exactly. So that's it's been repaired. It didn't get thrown away. Well, I guess it just got thrown away in a different way, didn't it? Parts of it got thrown away and replaced. But it got repaired as it went along. So that's very much about reducing the waste and thinking about how we approach what we value. And that would... Take, for instance, a toaster. That would mm. surely have to be solved in the design of it. I mean, how? because people might... You, you can't have people just sticking screwdrivers into toasters they're not qualified to repair. You know, you'd have a nation of people getting electrocuted. So it would have to be companies having to completely rethink how they make things to make them easier to fix. So that's something I'm interested in looking into. Um, one of the businesses we have in... So I live in Leith, and we have a really interesting business here called the Edinburgh Remakery. And they, their specialty is in themselves repairing largely old IT equipment, but things like phones and monitors and stuff, but also in teaching, uh, teaching people. So if you've got a broken phone, they'll show you how to fix it. So there's a whole cultural thing around empowering people so they can safely repair things. But as you suggest, also in encouraging manufacturers to design things to be repaired. And I wonder if that's something like I'm just speculating off the top of my head here about things that you might want to, you know, is, is think, think about ways of encouraging manufacturers to say, this is repairable. This is a, this is the toaster you will own your whole life because we've designed it to be repaired and you can keep coming back to it and we'll keep supporting it. Um, you know, that's a, that's a totally different way of thinking about owning a toaster that you own it until it breaks and then you buy a new toaster. I mean, I think, I guess with things like toasters, you're like, I don't need any extra functionality on a toaster. I just want it to toast my bread. But with phones, let's say mobile phones, if you said, okay, you'll have a phone for life, but think of what a phone does now compared to what it did 30 years ago, people's needs will change. 
Yeah, so I mean, some does, people's needs change. Some people's how, needs don't. Yeah. Um, what the Edinburgh Remakery does, for example, with old IT equipment is they strip it down, every single piece of it, including the boards, the precious metals, everything. They strip it down into tiny, tiny bits, and they send those bits to be reused. So that's okay. If you can't reuse something exactly in the situation that it's in, you can re can you reuse parts of it? Can you send bits of it, you know, can you break it down to its smallest components and make sure those get reused so that the absolute minimum is going to waste? And it's thinking about, I guess, being responsible, that whole side of cleaning up after yourself, that we owe it to future generations not to leave a world covered in junk, that there's actually really valuable precious metals inside phones and other materials that can be reused. Let's make sure that we are reclaiming those rather than, you know, da damaging our environment with opening new mines and, and so forth. Let, let's reuse the materials that are already already exist and already have been refined. Um, so as people will be able to tell from your accent, you're uh, Canadian, born in Calgary in Alberta in Canada. You visited Glasgow on a one-way ticket in the year 2000 and stayed. Now, anyone who's been to Glasgow will fully understand why you stayed there. It's a fantastic city. But were you expecting to land and then never go back? No, I was not at all expecting that. So when I graduated, I handed in my thesis and bought a one-way ticket because at that time I had an EU passport, which was a the golden ticket. A young person with an EU passport could go anywhere in Europe, live anywhere, work anywhere, study anywhere. Of course, our young people don't have that opportunity anymore, which I think is a real shame. But when I was a teenager, that was the golden ticket. So I, I rocked up here with my EU passport and I intended to maybe work in the UK for a couple of years, maybe then go into Europe and, and work and study there for a bit. But as it happened, I, I well, my first job was actually in Birkenhead, just outside of Liverpool, yeah. um, working on robotic telescopes. And that was a very cool job. So I did actually leave Glasgow and go to Birkenhead and work on robotic telescopes for a couple of years. And then I moved around the UK a bit, uh, working in biomedical, uh, biomedical automation in near Cambridge. And then I came back to Edinburgh to work in the sort of dying days of Silicon Glen in the, <laughs> um, before I moved into renewables. So yeah, I've been around in various different industries in the UK and it was always exciting to come here because something I, you know, I'd heard, which I think is still true, is that the UK is short of engineers. And so the UK doesn't produce enough of its home, enough homegrown engineers. So you have to import them. So there's a lot of foreigners like myself doing your engineering in Scotland and the rest of the UK, which I think is a shame uh, in some ways, because you know places like Scotland have a, such a strong tradition of being world leaders in engineering, but young people don't seem to find that as appealing anymore, which is a shame. So I'd like to do something to encourage young people to, to take up engineering, to study, to take apprenticeships in engineering, because I really think Scotland has a huge future here Scotland has 25% of all the renewable offshore renewable resource in Europe. And so I would like to see a green industrial revolution in Scotland where we build things and we build the best things in the world, tidal turbines, low carbon ferries and shipping, where we have, you know, heavy industry and manufacturing really reinvigorated in Scotland. That's something I would very much love to see. Um, so did your family say, Lorna, you, 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 we thought you were going to come back at some point. Why don't you love uh, us anymore? I don't, I, I don't think my family have that expectation. When I was 17, I bought myself with my own money a Greyhound bus ticket to the coast, and I never really went back. So my, my parents' expectations were already quite 
quite managed there. But my my family's the same. My great grandparents emigrated to Canada. My grandparents emigrated back to the UK, and my parents came back to Canada. So that we have a long tradition of jumping across the Atlantic with each generation. So I don't think they were very surprised. So you worked in Birkenhead and Oxford and other places. Cambridge. But, but yes. Cambridge. Sorry, I always get the two mixed up. It's such a bad <laughs> habit. I'm, I know a lot of people do that. Um, I can't believe I just did that. But So you worked across the UK, but you are committed to, to breaking the UK up, and yet you, you, you've enjoyed the, the benefit of being able to move across the UK and, and learn new skills and, and, and see the benefit of being able to move freely between Scotland and England. But you would, you would well, I used to be able to move freely between any country in the, in the EU, and now I can't, which is a real shame. But now you're but campaigning I... to move even less. Yeah, well, I voted for Scottish independence. Um, I don't think that uh, we would be in a situation where people of Scotland uh, can't move freely around in the UK. I don't think anybody wants that, and that's not the outcome that I would anticipate. Some people might want it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think that would be a very strange outcome to have, um, given that you know people people from Ireland, for example, can move freely in the UK. Why wouldn't people from Scotland be able to do that? That doesn't seem to me to be a barrier, and it's one of those kind of independent scare tactics. But no, I can tell you why I believe that Scottish independence is the right thing, and it's one element of it is that I think the UK's democracy is broken. Um, I think the 800 and counting unelected lords, uh, the first past the post electoral system, neither of those seem things to me seem reformable. You know, the Labour Party have been promising to reform the House of Lords for what, 130 years, and they haven't managed to do it. It's just, it's stuck. It's stuck in these old ways of thinking. It's stuck in this hostile two party shout across the aisle politics. That doesn't, you know, that isn't very representative of the people. And the final reason, even before Brexit, is is about the nuclear weapons. The UK is really, really wedded to those nuclear weapons, and I don't think that they are right. I think they're morally wrong. So I, I didn't get involved in politics until after the Scottish independence referendum because it felt to me like the, an opportunity had really been lost, an opportunity to do something different, to build something new, in a way that the UK doesn't seem to be able to do. Um, the UK is an old democracy. So the younger democracies of the world, New Zealand, Australia, India, all have proportional systems of recommend, of uh, election, uh, proportional systems, which means that their parliaments are better gender balanced. They better represent the people. They're more used to this sort of coalition or cooperative politics where one week you might have to vote with this party, the next week you have to vote with that party. So. You have to maintain a much more civil discourse. And then you see the kind of stuff that happens in Westminster. I just don't have confidence that that system is providing good governance for the UK. And I okay. wish I could fix it, but I don't have the power to do that. So the best I can do is to try and build something better. But you, you, have, you, know, you have this belief that things can be sent and mended, but not in democracy at in, in, uh, uh, Westminster level, that it can't be reformed. Yeah, that is you're right. I do believe that Westminster cannot be reformed. I would love to say I would love to be proven wrong. If someone can prove me wrong on that, by all means do so. I think it would be good for the people of the UK before or after independence to have a more democratic parliament. But that's not where they are and that's not where things are headed. The you know, there's laws going through just at the moment to suppress vote the vote, because that's the way that the Tories can stay in power. If they're doing the same sort of tricks that the Republicans do in America to suppress vote to voter ID, this is not to prevent fraud. This is to prevent people from voting. And it prevents the very people from voting who don't vote conservative. So that's a pretty bleak future. Um, and the kind of policies that we see coming out of the Home Office in terms of 
the hostile environment, in terms of things like the Windrush scandal. This is not a country I want to be part of, and I see no, I see no way out from that because the Conservatives are building this, and Labour is a mess and doesn't seem to be in a position to present a different vision for the UK. And because of the two-party system, which is forced on us by the first-past-the-post, they're stuck. So the only way out for me to reform the UK would be for Labour to take a strong position on um, proportional representation and the next time they ever, if they ever get in power again, to actually reform the House of Lords. But, you know, as I say, don't have high hopes. They had 130 years and they didn't. So Well, they did reform the it? House of Lords when they're in government. They abolished the majority oh. of hereditary peers. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> slow well, clap a, for Labour. Well, that was a big step forward from where, from where the, the situation they inherited. Well, well, I, I don't. I don't think it is a big step forward because there still are hereditary lords. There are still are bishops. Ninety percent of the hereditary peers right. under ten. Okay, but you know they're still all unelected. They're un, uh, they're appointed for life. Well, progress um, can sometimes be slow, and the British people's priority isn't necessarily the upper house of Parliament. So, if we want to do something to significant to tackle the climate crisis, to tackle social injustice, we have to do something sooner. And. You're absolutely right. It's frustrating. My husband's from the north of England, and he voted no in the last Scottish independence referendum because he didn't want to abandon his family and friends to the mercies of the Tories forever. But he has since changed his mind because, you know, at least the people of Scotland could have something better. But when you describe the, the discourse at Westminster, people shouting at each other, that's sometimes the way. Obviously, there are lots of pragmatic people in Westminster who do work across party lines in all parties. I just wonder how... The Scottish independence referendum when Jim Murphy was assaulted in the street and had to stop campaigning, when Alex Salmond, the man who ran the Yes campaign, has had to stand trial in court, where Nicola Sturgeon now says she was inured to some of his behaviour, uh, all sorts of allegations about the way he treated his staff. That doesn't seem particularly mature or pleasant. So I had a really different experience of that independence referendum. As I say, at that time, I wasn't involved in politics in any way at all. I was just a, a lay person going about my job. But what excited me about that is you know, I would go to the gym and, you know, the girls behind the juice counter were talking about what powers were in Westminster and we should have in Scotland. And I remember I was working up in Orkney, so I was staying in a hotel, and the, the breakfast waitress was arguing with a person she was serving about proportional representation and better democracy. And it seems to me that at, at the at the people level, at the ordinary people level, it was creating this dialogue about what kind of country that we wanted to be and about people were politically engaged in an enormous way. People, ordinary people were talking about proportional representation and devolved powers and what this might mean and what the future might be. And the turnout for that was 85%. I mean, that's a stonking turnout. People were engaged, they cared, they wanted to have their views heard. And so my experience of that, even though, as I say, my husband voted no, we voted opposite ways in that referendum, was, and I, I totally understood why he voted the way that he did. Um, because I sympathize with, you know, abandoning the north of England to the tender mercies of the Tories. That, that terrifies me as well. But it was a civil debate. So my experience of it was well, overwhelmingly positive. It wasn't for a lot of people. A, a lot of people found it really distressing. A lot of people found yeah, it... Yeah, as I, I mean, say, but that you must have seen that. No, but you must have seen I it. I didn't experience it because, as I say, I wasn't involved you must in have politics have seen the news. You must have seen Jim Murphy getting pelted with eggs in the street. I don't remember. See, I'm sure you're right. You don't remember I, I don't, it. No, it was I don't massive remember. News. I wasn't particularly engaged in it politics. It sounds like you were very engaged. I was engaged. just a person. No, as I say, I was just going about my normal life. I was 
It you feels know, like you didn't see any of that. I'm amazed. You know, I was down here and I saw it. I mean, it was it was it was big news. Yeah, it's it's just interesting that people have different experiences. We talked about it in the office. We talked about it at home. As I say, I overheard people as I went about my daily life, but I didn't participate in any events or even particularly in those days. This is a while ago now. Um, wasn't particularly engaged. It was after that point that I became engaged when it seemed like, as I said, that there was this opportunity to build something better, an opportunity to do something new that was missed. And I felt that I just didn't want to miss that opportunity again. Um, and I think I still think that's true. I think Scotland has the chance to do something new and different and to play a role model. And do you know what? I actually hope that this would benefit the whole UK because what I hope would be the result of Scottish independence is Scotland demonstrating that it is possible to have a social care system that everybody can access, that it is possible to have living wages, that it is possible to have a practical plan to tackle the crisis that does that also supports a thriving economy. And if Scotland can demonstrate those things, then maybe, just maybe, England has a chance as well. And hopefully, by rejoining the EU, Scotland can demonstrate what a great thing that is. And one day, the remainder of the UK, England and Wales, can rejoin the EU too. And we'll all be part of that part of that big movement again, that big peace movement and that big story of economic success. So I'm hoping that Scotland becoming independent would lead to good things for the rest of the UK as well. But, you know, we're in different places, places politically. But With are the we? UK, but is, yeah, is no, that I think we are. Yeah, I think we are. So the UK becoming more hostile to immigrants. Um, you know, well, I, I don't know if you've seen the sectarian chanting in, in Glasgow last weekend, the anti-Irish racism. It was horrendous, yeah. So Scotland but, still has its issues with race and identity. That's that's very hostile behaviour towards Irish people. That was horrendous behaviour, I agree. There should be no place for that in Scotland. It was but do you worry about this discourse that it's sort of basically here. like, you know, Scotland's more progressive than England, isn't borne out by any data, any polling, any evidence? I, I completely disagree with you on that. I think it is absolutely borne out by evidence, and you can see that in the Scottish Parliament. We have a majority in that Scottish Parliament for non-Tories, the SNP are... But that's not a measure of how progressive the public are. Yes, it is. It's a, we well, have it's a, a measure of, we the, have, is it measure of how the public perceived to be the most competent leaders of a country. Or And they like the progressive policies. We have baby boxes here. We have free prescriptions here. We have free social care here. We, you know, we... They're not massive have... things. They're not, I mean, they're, they're good, but they're not. Baby boxes and free prescriptions aren't really radical differences. They're not radical, but they are significant differences. In the UK, you know, down in England where you have to pay for prescriptions. Unless you're, are... and, and not everyone has to pay for prescriptions in England. Low-income people don't. People I mean, this is the whole point, is that you can have these progressive changes that kind of add up, and they actually make a big difference. We're going to have free bus travel for everyone under 22 soon. We, it's a different approach. So Scotland has been a bit slow in using some of its powers and implementing that, and that's something that the Greens would always hope to push the SNP government on. And now that we're part of government, we hope to kind of lead the way on that. And because I think it's both, both of these things can be true, that the government, Scottish government, can be more progressive than it has been, and that we could still do more with independent, with pro-independence policies. Because I, I think that the UK is really holding Scotland back. And you see it in things like, if you look at the list, and I recommend you do this, go to Wikipedia and look at the list of reserved powers. So Scotland, for example, even though we have, as I was mentioning, so much potential with renewable energy, 
it's not a devolved power for us to be able to install subsea cables, subsea export cables. So the UK government can strangle our ability to develop our own industry because they, they won't do it. It's not in their interest to do so. Scottish producers of renewable energy have to pay much higher grid charges than English ones do. So the UK government is deliberately making our industries less competitive. There, I can go down the list of all the things that aren't devolved and all the things that the UK is doing that makes Scotland struggle. And it doesn't have to be this way. Scotland could do better as an independent country. And then you see all the powers that have come back from Brexit, which should have gone to the Scottish Parliament, which the UK government retrospectively, you know, they the Scottish Parliament passed a, a bill and the UK government retrospectively overrode that bill to take those powers back to Westminster. Westminster is not playing nicely with Scotland. They are taking back our devolved powers. They are bringing things like the internal market bill, which gives us even less power than we had as members of the EU. They're not playing nicely. If they want Scotland to be a functional part of the UK, they need to treat us as if what we care about matters and they're not. So I actually think that the biggest driver for independence is coming from the UK because I don't think Boris Johnson cares. I don't think Boris Johnson cares if Scotland stays or goes because it's not, it's not, he doesn't think long-term, he just thinks about his next television appearance. And so he's mistreating Scotland in a way that's really getting people's backs up. So I think the Scot Scottish people are quite right to campaign for independence, but that's the point. We need a referendum. Situation has changed. And I don't mind if yourself or other people want to campaign for the union, please go ahead. The problem that I have is with those unionist parties who say that we shouldn't have a referendum. Because to me, that is a chicken answer. That is them not having the courage of their convictions. If you think the union's so great, brilliant. Campaign for it. Don't well, say, they did. oh, we can't have they a They did referendum. just a few years ago and they won. And the situation has materially changed. We were that, told that was once in a generation. That was that was promised by the person you were now in government. That was not promised. That it was absolutely just was. A line. That was a, it was a throwaway line. That is a ridiculous It was a throwaway line on. used over and over and over again. That to encourage people to get out to vote, which is what they did. So, but you but can't they, trust Nicola Sturgeon when she goes on telling and says something. I don't agree on the prospectus for that independence referendum because the prospectus was the way you lose your EU membership is to vote yes. Actually, and it would have done. And it would have done. It would have taken you, Scotland out of the EU. The UK took Scotland out of the yeah, EU. Absolutely. And our best but also, getting back in. But voting yes would have taken to, Scotland out. But you do accept that it would have. Well, I, I, I don't accept that because well, of course the, it would. No, okay, what would have happened if you vote yes? So we would then have had to enter some discussions with the EU because the EU will not even speak to Scotland until they are an until we are an independent country. So that's where they, that's where this. But you would have had you would have to rejoin as an independent member state. So you would have initially left the European Union. There would need to have been a discussion about. But exactly you know that. that I mean, works. that's a politician's. No, you know that that no, would have. No, I don't, I don't think meant. that's. I don't think that that is what it means because normally, if you're re, if you're joining the EU. You don't have alignment on law. You don't have alignment on human rights law and the certification standards and all that stuff. Now, Scotland did have all of that. We already were in perfect alignment. There didn't need to be any practical reason to delay Scotland joining the EU. And the worry is the longer we're out, the more divergence there will be and the more difficult it will be for Scotland to rejoin. So that's an argument for us rejoining, you know, becoming independent sooner or later so we can start to have those conversations. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. 
Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. So when the, the sort of powers that rested with Europe that then come to the UK, I don't understand the problem with that because if you're happy to pool and share resources with European countries, why not with your closest neighbour? Well, so it wasn't. It's not so much about pooling and sharing resources. It's about those kind of decisions that can be made. So the EU laws, for example, around food standards and animal welfare standards, allowed every country within the EU to. You had to have a baseline, but you could yourself impose higher standards if you wanted to. The way the UK is interpreting those laws, in terms of things like the um, the Internal Markets Bill and and some of the other there was a, there was a trades bill as well they are saying you can't change, you can't deviate at all. So the EU allowed us to, to put in better animal welfare standards if we felt that you know we're an animal-loving country, if we felt that we wanted better than the baseline. But the UK is not allowing that. So the, we had more flexibility under the EU than we were allowed under the UK. And the worry, of course, is that the UK now needs to go around and find international partners. The, the practical realness of the world is that there are three superpowers in the world the EU, China, and America. And if you're going to have any sort of economic success in the world, you have to align yourself with one of those superpowers. Now, we've just pissed off the EU. Slow clap, right? So China's a long way away, and we're kind of pissing them off, too, by sending aircraft carriers to lurk in their waters. So that means that our greatest pal now has got to be America. And we know that food and farming standards in America are lower. We know that they use chemicals in their um, processing that we don't use here. We know that their abattoir standards are lower. And, and, and we don't want that here. But in order to do any sort of deal with America, we would need to lower the standards. That will be a thing. So Brexit... But that would be true. That would be true with China as well, wouldn't it? Well, I'm not saying we should go with China. No, I think, you we, sound we slightly disappointed that we annoyed China. <laughs> well, but, you know, like, it's a, it, aligning, yeah, aligning ourselves with China in that sort of sense of joining an economic bloc would, is not a sensible idea either. But I think aligning ourselves with the U.S., it was a mistake too. The EU was the right body for us to be part of. They had the highest food and welfare standards in the in the world. They have the highest environmental standards, the highest safety standards for workers, the best, you know, everything about the EU is not perfect. And I'm not pretending that it is, but it's still the best in the world. And so we can only go downhill from here. And, you know, we're already seeing empty shelves from Brexit, job losses, businesses struggling and going under all the things that we said would happen with Brexit are happening. And, you know, there could have been less damaging Brexits, but the Tories chose to go ahead with the most damaging one in the middle of a pandemic. It's a disaster. Like you can't pretend it's anything other than, and again, I think Scotland can do better as an independent country. 
Is there not a danger, though, that you see the impact of Brexit? And One of Nicola Sturgeon's new economic advisers said that Scottish independence would be Brexit times 10 in terms of its impact on the Scottish economy. Scotland, 60% of Scottish imports are with England. If you create any sort of trade friction there, and potentially a hard border, then if you look at the empty shelves of Brexit, imagine what Scottish independence would mean for businesses north of the border. Do you worry about the economic impact? Well, I mean, I think we all need to look seriously at what the economic impact is. But I don't think that those impacts are necessarily entirely negative. I've already outlined to you some of the reasons that why being part of the UK is really damaging to the Scottish economy in terms of us being able to develop our renewable resources, make our own businesses competitive by not charging them extra tariffs and so on. So there is a bigger picture about how we see the Scottish economy. And I think a lot of the figures that we see around are inaccurate or they make assumptions that I, I don't think are true, uh, that I think are actually really easy to challenge. And we've already seen, for example, how resilient um, things are in, like in Ireland before Brexit. I can't remember what the proportion was, but a significant proportion of Irish goods came to the EU via the UK. But here we are a year on in and those things just bypass the UK now. They've the redirected the ferries, they've changed their supply chains, and it's just going direct to the EU now. There's no reason to suspect that our economy is any less resilient. And the idea that the Scotland and England would stop trading is absurd. I think if we can have a borderless, uh, you know, between the Northern Ireland and Ireland, then we can do the same between England and Scotland. It's been done. It, you know, there's an Ireland right next to us where they do that exact thing, EU, non-EU, and we can do that here. I mean, the best answer would be for England and Wales to come to their senses and rejoin the EU, but we'll see. <laughs> in that case, then, would you then be against Scottish independence? No, I think I'm still in favour of Scottish independence because I don't think that there's any sort of harm in it in the sense that you know we've already got a devolved parliament, the Scottish Greens believe in, well, Green parties around the world believe in this policy of grassroots democracy, of subsidiarity, that you want people to be able to make decisions as close to home as possible. And so I think... So then why join the EU? ...decisions about Scotland. So, there, but there's different levels of decision-making, aren't there? Some decisions, yeah. it, some decisions, it makes sense to make at a global level. For example, when you're managing fishing. Uh, because but, fish, but it, basically you around. agree with every level of decision making apart from the British one. So national, local, cut out Britain and go straight to Europe. But I've explained the problem with it with the UK level is the is the sort of dysfunctionality of the democracy at the UK level. So the European. But hang on, let's have a look at some of the European countries and how they elect their leaders. I mean, you're still around the table with people way more right wing than the Tories in, in democracies way less functioning than. Westminster. But the European Parliament itself is a proportional parliament. So the UK, I mean, the UK isn't. And we are we are no longer part of that, that European That doesn't parliament, mean it's so we don't get completely beyond hope and can't contribute positive things. But I think... That's not the only measure, surely, of a democracy is whether it has proportional representation or not. It's about how functional it is. We've already talked about the House of Lords. We've yeah, talked but, about... It's, it's, ultimately, isn't it, about what it does for the people is can it run public services properly? Does it run a, 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 an economy that works for people? They're the real measures. But I, don't, I think that that's a really interesting thing that you should put it that way, because I think the UK absolutely fails on those measures. You know, I grew up in a country which has but much better Scotland. social mobility. Scotland's working better at it, but we have a limited powers. You know, Scotland... We have a higher, higher, higher uh, deficit percentage. Scotland... Than... 
than Westminster. Well, okay. well, that's interesting because Scotland runs on a fixed budget. So we can't have a deficit. They have to spend their entire budget every year. So when you talk about a deficit, you're talking about numbers that have been run up on Scotland's behalf by a UK government. Those are not. Yes, and if Scotland leaves those, if Scotland leaves, that's less per head spending available. Only if you believe that Scotland lives on handouts from the UK. No, I just think the JERS figures are really clear. The JERS figures are really easy to challenge because the JERS figures show a model of how Scotland works within the UK. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so Scotland... So if you take that away, you have less money. No, I don't agree with that at all. Scotland works, we work differently outside the UK. I think the JERS figures... But you know what different, that's just a political word for less. No, it isn't. It isn't at all because... Without being in the UK, we wouldn't have to pay for some of the nonsense that we have to pay for now, like Trident nuclear weapons, um, you know, like expansion of Heathrow Airport, things which don't benefit the Scottish people. But a lot of those have Barnet Formula consequentials, which lead to higher public spending in Scotland. There should be higher public spending in Scotland, but you're making all sorts of assumptions in those GR figures that we wouldn't change the tax structure in Scotland, for example. Why would we become an independent country just to keep everything exactly the same? And you know, the UK it, but, but, does not have a progressive is it, tax structure. But it is, a, it, it is an but it is an immediate removal of funding, isn't it? That has to be replaced somehow. Again, only if you think that Scotland lives on handouts uh, from the UK government. But what happens is all the tax revenue from Scotland goes down to the Westminster, and yeah. some amount of that comes back in an independent Scotland. All that tax revenue would go directly to the Scottish government. So instead of you know taking a holiday down to Westminster and then coming back, it would go straight straight to the UK government like it does every other government in the world. Other small countries are very successful. Look at Denmark, look at Ireland, look at, you know, being a small country in the EU is a perfectly sensible and prosperous economic proposal. There's no reason at all that Scotland can't be a very successful eventually, European country. Eventually. Why not right away? Where's where's all that tax money? All of well, the jobs it, we have in Scotland, all that industry is just going to vanish overnight? No, it isn't. That's well, not how that works. When, but you talk about the impact of Brexit. In the run-up to the 2014 referendum, you had insurance companies, you had whiskey companies warning about the impact of independence on their business. They were genuinely talking about relocating elsewhere within the UK. So we've already seen the impact of some of that economic behaviour in the wake of Brexit. What makes you think that those people wouldn't be telling the truth when they say that they would do it in the in the wake of Scottish independence? I think Scottish independence has a huge amount of potential for investment in Scotland, particularly because we would, you know, as, as soon as possible opportunity to rejoin the EU. So I suspect that quite a lot of UK companies that would like to do better trading with the EU would relocate to Scotland. And it's about being able to exploit Scotland's natural resources better. We we have all this potential in Scotland particularly around renewable energy, but also around our food and drink, which is suffering very badly with Brexit. We can do, I think we would see an economic boom after Scottish independence, I'll be honest with you. How soon? Because all these open, all the, oh, goodness me. I <laughs> goodness, I but this is what people are going to ask. They're going to say, but I mean, even the most hardened members of the SNP that I speak to admit that the first sort of five, 10, maybe 15 years would be, you know, they use euphemistic phrases like hard work and it'd be tough. What they mean is job losses, repossessions, right. no, I don't think business that, well, closures. I don't think that's right. I don't think that that is right. I don't, I don't think there's any need to kind of suck your teeth and go, oh, it's going to be rough. I don't think that that's, there's no reason to think that at all. And what you've got to look at is the difference between Scottish independence and where we are. 
you know, even senior Tories are saying, oh, there's nothing good about Brexit. Young people have nothing to look forward to. That's grim. I can tell you a much better story about how an independent Scotland has, you know, wave energy. We've got tidal energy. We've got offshore wind energy. And as long as we can install our own subsea cables, as long as we can charge our own tariffs, once we can do things like land tax, once we can actually tax the wealthy and close down tax havens and join the EU in stopping people dodging their taxes and make sure the rich are paying their share once we can reshape a country i mean this is the green vision obviously yeah, i was gonna say i can't see it's the smp doing that you know much fairer much fairer country i absolutely don't think that there's necessarily any hardship in it but i think these are the kind of conversations that we absolutely should have in the run-up to scottish independence and that's something where i think uh, the Scottish Greens and the SNP need to put together solid prospectus on what we're offering people. Something that I note was missing from Brexit was a solid prospectus. I don't think or believe that people knew what they were voting for for Brexit, but I absolutely do think that we should we can do better in in preparing people to vote, like to know what the future is that they're voting for. Are you slightly concerned that you know? whole conversation Scotland has been around independence we're still coming through Covid which can take many many years for society to repair you're in a power sharing arrangement with someone who admits she took her eye off the ball that led to so many more people dying needlessly from drug drugs in Scotland than was required you're slightly concerned that the constitutional debate in Scotland is one of the main reasons why there aren't more progressive outcomes from Hollywood I mean, the big thing we have to look at right now is the climate emergency. That's got to be our number one thing. We know from the IPCC report that we are, co it's code red for humanity. We have less than 10 years to make substantial changes to our economy. And, you know, you talked about the pandemic. If you thought living through a pandemic was bad, you haven't lived through the breakdown of your biosphere yet. But I think that the exact same things that we need to do to give our economy a boost coming out of the COVID pandemic are the very same things that we need to do to tackle the climate crisis. And that is substantial public investment in things like public transportation, in things like renewable energy. And of course, social justice and environmental justice go together. If your kids are hungry, you're not worrying about the polar bears, right? If you're waiting for cancer treatment that has been delayed, you don't care about the ice caps. So people need to have the health care they need. They need to have incomes in their pocket that they can rely on. So the social justice element goes along with that at the same time. So we do need urgently transformative change. And so I think it's, it's not good politics at this stage in history when we have, as Caroline Lucas said, interlocking crises. We have the climate crisis. We have a housing crisis. We have a pandemic economic recovery crisis. It's not good politics to sit and go, well, I don't like that. I don't like your policy on that. So I'm not going to work with you. That's childish politics. It's not good enough. We need to do better as politicians and say, all right, we are aware. We disagree on these matters, but okay, here's something that we do agree on. We need, we need a national care service. We need Scotland's homes upgrading so that they are warmer, cheaper to heat, so that people, old people aren't dying of the cold. Let's work on those things because we can still make transformative change within the areas that we agree on. And do you know what? I wish all the parties in Hollywood would get on board with that because I am so tired of this torrent of negativity when actually there's some really important stuff that we need to get on with, you know, in terms of making sure that every kid in Scotland has a healthy meal to eat at, at their lunchtime. You know, free school meals for, for school children is such an important one, making sure every kid has lunch, making sure that, Young people have the opportunities they need, the apprenticeships, making sure the jobs are going to be there when we need them. Let's focus on those things and just be grown-ups about the areas where we disagree. 
that would be very nice. That would be that would be very nice in all parts of uh, the UK, not just in Scotland, if that was possible. Um, just thinking about green politics and sort of green philosophy. I mean, do you? I mean, I guess you see yourself as a green, of course. That's a silly thing to say. But do you see yourself as a socialist as well, or is that are you sort of distinct from that kind of politics? So it's a really interesting question to ask, and I'm glad you asked it. So the green movement is a global movement worldwide, and there are four pillars of the green movement, which are peace, sustainability, equality, and grassroots democracy. Sustainability is the environmental bit. Equality is about you know all the sort of social justice stuff that we just talked about, having enough food to eat. Um, peace, nonviolence, that's core to our movement, and the grassroots democracy. People need to have a say in how in the things that matter to them because people always make the best decisions about themselves because people are experts in their own lives. And we know, for example, that when you give communities the power to decide, they make good decisions because everybody can see how green space, places for kids to play, thriving economy benefits their communities. It's much harder you know, it's much harder to look your neighbor in the eye and go, I'm closing down your kid's playground, you know, whereas it's easy to sit in Westminster and go, I'm going to frack under your village in Yorkshire. When politics is done to you from a great distance, um, it becomes something that's irrelevant to you, like a force of nature. And I better politics is when people are fully engaged in the process. So that's the kind of philosophy behind the Greens and all green parties around the world would sign up to that. So we're part of a worldwide movement. We talk to each other, we get together. But how you implement those policies is a matter of much debate. And in, internally with us as well, within the Scottish Greens, we have a, a culture of very healthy and energetic debate about every detail of this. So I think everyone has their own kind of personal interpretation as exactly how best how best do you implement equality. Some people uh, would say some people are anarchists, some people are socialists. I would say at the moment in the Scottish Greens, the eco-socialists are a leading sort of philosophy um, that we are there. But, you know, there's other elements in there. We have some healthy debates about it. But yeah, at the moment, I would say the party is very much uh, an eco-socialist leading. We get... Uh, was it Murdo Fraser called us lentil eating watermelons, uh, which we we took as such a mark of pride that many yeah. of us started wearing watermelon badges <laughs> and lentil badges. Um, oh, so we just eat the lentils. So, which, of course, yeah. Um, <laughs> so you describe yourself as an eco-socialist. Yes, I would describe myself as an eco-socialist. And just on balancing all those different things because it's quite an interesting coalition that you have in in, in the in the green movement globally and, and within the Scottish Greens. You obviously have a co-leader model as well. Uh, you and Patrick Harvey are the co-leaders of the Scottish Greens. Yeah. How is that relationship managed? Uh, are there sort of clearly demarked areas, different briefs that you lead on, or do you share everything? So, uh, we share. Well, we we sh we share quite a lot of things. So it's an interesting model that we have. So with the Scottish Greens, we and and many green parties around the world do this. We seek not only to influence others with our beliefs, we try to live our beliefs as well. So in how we organize our party as well. And part of that is rejection of things like hierarchies, rejection of things like the patriarchy. Um, and so one of the things that we've introduced at all levels of leadership within the Scottish Greens and that branches at national committees in our representative groups, which advocate for people who are underrepresented in politics, we always have a co-leader model or a co-convener model. And we do that partly because it embeds right into the structure and our thinking, this idea that no one is right, that you always have to come to consensus and the best decisions are made by negotiation and cooperation and consensus building. So that's built right into our model. 
further to that, one of the co, whether it's co-leaders, co-communers, always has to be a woman. And we do that because we know that women are chronically underrepresented in all decision-making bodies. And what's interesting about that is it presents the party with some challenges. And some of our branches have gone even further. So I know Edinburgh branch, for example, has a, a self-imposed rule that half of the committee need to be women. So not just the leadership, but the whole committee so that all decisions are made by a group of people, at least half of whom are women. And that presents interesting problems because when you give yourself that commitment, you start say, seeing the barriers. Well, why, why do we not have half women? Why is it that we have so many men showing up and not the women? And you start asking your questions, about, well, is it because of when we hold the meetings? Are we tending to hold the meetings in the evenings in, at times when you know, a lot of women have caring duties and it's bath and bedtime? Okay, so maybe we need to think about how, what time we hold our meetings at. Okay, and we have a culture where we make people put themselves forward for posts. Women are taught from very young ages not to put themselves forward, not to be the tall poppy, to blend in. At meetings, you know, we have implemented structures where we always ask a woman to speak first because it changes the dynamic of a meeting when it's a meeting that women speak at. If you go to a lot of meetings, I challenge you to observe this in your own life. If the chair first asks a man to speak, you'll then get a string of men speaking. And you, it's, because then it becomes a meeting at which only men are speaking, you, it's very hard to get a woman to speak. So putting in place these self-imposed gender balancing mechanisms force us to, uh, to deal with some of the cultural, actual structural barriers that are stopping women from getting in. And the result of this has been amazing. In branches that have done this successfully, the talent we are getting in, these young women, they're talented, they're smart, they know what they want, they're articulate, they're just amazing. So I'm really looking forward to going forward, nurturing talent within the Greens. I think the Green Party have a, a really good future. We know that, for example, the Greens in New Zealand, after having been in cooperation agreement with the government there, their vote more than doubled because they were seen as not only a party of good policy, but a policy a party that could get things done. And that's the vision I have for the Scottish Greens as well, that this cooperation agreement means that we will now be a party who can get things done. So that means I need to have the talent ready so that when we're winning elections in the future and we have more councillors and more MSPs, I know that we've got talented, hardworking people in those posts. So that's exciting. But that it all stems back to that original ethos of making sure we organise our party in the way we would like to see the whole world organised. But do you also have um, rules about race and class and other things like that? We don't have hard rules about those things, but what we do have is a lot of conversations about them. So within the group, within, sorry, within the uh, Scottish Greens, we have what we call our representative groups. And the, these are member-led groups. We have a very active women's network, a very active young Greens, a very active rainbow Greens and disabled Greens. Where, or, there is a Greens of colour group as well. And the whole point of these groups is to support people to take roles within the party, to be able to participate and speak at meetings, and then I, ideally uh, to stand as candidates as well, and then to support candidates. So we have, you know, uh, one of our MSPs identifies as disabled. We've got more than half women MSPs this time, and several of our MSPs are rainbows as well. So I think our representative groups are one of the strongest things that we've got going in the party because they've really embedded that empowering of diversity in the party and i and i think that's really starting to pay off and you can see that in our msp group at the moment but it's a pretty white msp group yes it is absolutely so th i mean that's 
we, we are not going to be perfect in our, you know, we're, we're always striving for improvement. So yeah, and I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to be challenged on that because it's something we know ourselves that we, we don't do well enough and that we need to do better. And uh, I'm, I look forward to continuing to support our Greens of Colour rep group to encourage candidates of colour and also just our members of colour to participate in the party. And hopefully that will help us address whatever barriers are in place that a white person like me can't spot. Um, so that we can get those barriers removed and get a better diversity. What about, I mean, some of the other stuff, I mean, now that you're in government, you must be having so much more scrutiny about internal party stuff, you know, the stuff that other political parties have to deal with all the time. When you're new and shiny, there's a kind of benefit to that. People go, oh, this is really exciting. The Greens are in government. There's a lot of goodwill that comes. There's a lot of excitement. But also, when you're not used to having your internal processes scrutinised, sometimes it can put daylight on things that perhaps, now that you're in government, you might think, are these things we still... I mean, look at... The Labour Party's been around for, you know, 120 years, and some of its internal stuff is still, you know, hugely problematic, particularly around anti-Semitism. And it is an issue that the Scottish Greens have had um, with motions that you've passed... Um, about Hamas not being a terrorist organisation, calling Israel an apartheid state. Are they things that you think you need to revisit and are they things that you agree with? All these things that come to the, you know, come to party conference, we anyone can bring a motion to party conference and we encourage that. We're a very grassroots dem democratic party. Any member can bring any motion to conference that they wish to have heard and they can, there's a debate for and a debate against. So what we do have is a you know, a, a policy of healthy debate in the party. And what that means is that every member doesn't agree with every policy, that, but that's true of every party. You're never Absolutely. going to get a political party where you agree with every single one. Um, I mean, I think the accusations of anti-Semitism are, are unfair and I think un, unfounded. They, you know, we're against bigotry and discrimination in any form at all. And should that, you know, should there be evidence of that in the, within the party, I would absolutely want to hear about that. And we have a robust and very quite effective complaints uh, procedure to deal with that. So I would absolutely want to hear about those things. But I don't think that that represents us at all. I think that we, you know, we can always improve. We're doing better to be, you know, better diversity, to hear more voices. And I, I expect us to continue on that path. It's been a big conversation, obviously, in, in UK politics, predominantly around Jeremy Corbyn. And, you know, some of those... You think about the Morning Star, you know, Ross Greer, one of your MSPs, wrote an article in there. You know, these are organs that have defended Ken Loach, that have challenged the uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of anti-Semitism. I mean, do you think Israel is an apartheid state? I don't think that you can have to lump all that together. You can disagree with the policies of a country without demonising you know, a cultural group. And I don't, I don't think that that's, you know, necessarily something you can conflate together. But I, I, it's just really important that you have these baseline rules. And I think it's part of being a bigger party. And as you say, coming under public scrutiny, that people start asking questions and, and challenging our views. And I think they're quite right to do so. Like, you know, every, everybody can use a, a bit of challenge and healthy debate. And that's not something that I would discourage. But if you, you know, if we're seeing bigotry or anti-Semitism or anti-Islam, you know, Islamophobia or transphobia or sexism within, you know, within the party. We want that challenged robustly because we are not at home to that. Absolutely zero tolerance to, to any of those things. So when those things get voted through, did you vote in favour of it or did you think, oh God, this is awful? 
that was, uh, I believe, at Party Conference in 2015, which I did not attend because I was a new member at that point. Oh, so, oh, that, well, you need more, you need to be more inclusive of new members. You need to let... No, no, actually, that's a fair point. No, 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 that, that's a fair point. So, um, yeah, well, as a new member, I didn't understand about, like, the voting through motion stuff. I didn't, because you get this sort of conference program, and I'm like, oh, that sounds really boring. I'm going to go to do something else. So I went to something else. Nowadays, of course, I, I, I understand the party thing. But yes, no, it wasn't something I understood as a, as a new member. Um, so that, that, I mean, that's a very good point in terms of how people interact with the party that's something we could challenge ourselves on and i think every party could are we as grassroots as we would like to be do ordinary members feel safe speaking up uh, let's let's look at that always happy to improve those kind of things i used to be a member of the labor party and i remember going to my first meeting when i was 15 and was told i couldn't vote on something and i kind of understood why but it was almost quite embarrassing you were like all oh, right okay i'll just sort of, i think i even <laughs> blush you know thinking about it now it's like, oh man you know you're very keen at 15. That's very good. Very sad. Oh, it's brilliant to have more young people in politics. I think that's something we definitely need more of in every party, more young people. I'm not sure I count as a young person anymore. No, I definitely don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, do, do you ever um, look to Canada and think you'd like to stand for office there? Or do you think you're, you're, this is Scotland is entirely where your political future lies? Well, I mean, Scotland's my home. I've been here for... When did I move here? 2004. Uh, so I moved to the UK in 2000 and, and permanently settled in Scotland in 2004. Mm. So yeah, this is my home now. My friends are here. My husband's here. Um, I've worked my whole adult career here because I, I, as I said, I in the same month that I graduated, I bought a one-way ticket. So I've never even worked in Canada as an adult, only as a student. So I wouldn't even know where to begin. I don't really feel very Canadian anymore. I'm very out of the loop on what's going on there. And when your family talks to you, do they say, Lorne, you sound Scottish? Um, no, they're kind of used to how I sound, but I'm I'm told by everyone I know in Scotland that I still sound really Canadian. You do, which yeah. I'm so ashamed of because some people have a really good ear, don't they? And they're able to pick up the local the local accent, but I have totally failed. <laughs> um, I know I'm so ashamed. I just don't have a good ear. I'm not even able to do accents. I can only do my own. <laughs> well, that's okay. I think it's uh, <laughs> hopefully being an impressionist isn't a prerequisite for holding office uh, in anywhere in the world. Um, you did the TV debates this year. Obviously, it was uh, I watched all of them. How, <coughs> excuse me. How did you find that? Because they look like nerve-wracking experiences. I was absolutely terrified. I I lost so much weight because I didn't eat for days beforehand. No, I was absolutely terrified. So I did a little video on my Instagram, which is I talk about this sort of imposter syndrome that I felt because all the people in that debate were either MSPs or M. MPs and you know I was standing across from the first minister and at that point I'm I'm an engineer you know I, I I know how to like wire up junction boxes I know how to read a diagram I know how to implement an ISO 9000 system do you know like I don't what what am I doing so I had this terrible imposter syndrome. no I found it absolutely terrifying just uh, I was in the right state uh, honestly well it didn't show thank you <laughs> So you obviously, whatever nerves you may have had were very, very well hidden. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm autistic. And uh, so we talk about autistic people performing, um, performing uh, all the time to, in order to sort of blend in masking their autism and stuff. So for, I guess there's some element of I perform all the time in order to blend in with humans. And so performing on a stage isn't so different than just performing human in a normal part of life. This is going to, I, I mean this with the very best of intentions. I hope I don't use the wrong language here. 
I would never have guessed. So it's really, it's really common. So that's. I mean that. I, I mean that as a compliment. Yeah, I don't mean well, that to be like see, you know. It, uh, it just means I mask really well. So yeah, and women, women often demonstrate um, autism differently than men do anyway. Um, but yeah, so that's that's a part of you know ma managing my interactions with people and per performing. I always joke about it, is performing human. <laughs> but people who know me know that I sometimes get it wrong and I sometimes misread social cues or, and I find it very tiring. So I, I tend to go to bed really early. It's uh, autism exhaustion is a thing um, because our brains don't process information in the same way. So we have to use a lot more energy to kind of uh, sift through all the information that comes at us. That's why autistic people often find environments where there's too much noise or light or color really overwhelming because our brains don't differentiate between types of information. They process all of it. So um, it's exhausting, <laughs> but you can learn to mask. And uh, apparently I'm reasonably skilled at doing that. I think you're very skilled. I mean, I just would, <laughs> would never have known. I mean, I, I don't want to sound disrespectful to autistic people, but obviously we think of autism in a particular way, I think, and that's probably wrong. But nevertheless, if you think of an autistic person, you think of a sort of a way that that presents. Um, and I would never have picked up. So when were you diagnosed? Um, formally two years ago. But I'd had it kind of flagged to me by a mental health care professional a couple of years earlier when I sort of had one of those conversations. She's like, do you think you might be autistic? And I'm like, I don't know. I do this thing. Is that an autism thing or is that a normal person thing? And she's like, oh, that's an autism thing. <laughs> so we had a really oh, interesting wow. conversation, but it, it took me a couple of years to kind of get around to getting a formal diagnosis. Yeah. And did it come as a relief? Um, I don't. It wasn't really a shock. Um, I mean, I can put this in context. My mother is a Scrabble champion and memorizes lists of words. My dad keeps a book which has in it every bird he's ever seen and how many of them in on what day. So, yeah, you're laughing, but like, exactly, exactly. Not really very surprising. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I guess with, and, and I speak as someone who doesn't, you know, has no idea what it's like. And and uh, I'm very lucky to have not suffered with mental health or any, you know, uh, anything like autism or, or Asperger's. But I imagine that if sort of things are going on and you're picking up on it and maybe other people are, in a way to get a diagnosis must uh, uh, be some form of relief where you go, okay, I understand what this means now. Yeah, and I think there's an element of forgiving myself a bit because I'm always very hard on myself. And, you know, if I misread a social cue or act inappropriately in a situation there used to be oh i'm just a terrible person now i could say i'm just an autistic person i just read misread a cue i got it wrong i made a yeah. mistake yeah so it's, you can just kind of it may but then you can retrospectively look back at your child and go oh that makes sense now <laughs> <laughs> but also you can't spend your life beating yourself up whether it's autism or not you know people get stuff wrong sometimes people misread stuff i mean crikey you have to go yeah, exactly uh, you, you can't beat yourself up, Lorne. No, <laughs> terrible feeling of you sort of walking around under a, 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 a grey cloud, constantly worrying about things you've said or done wrong. Oh, well, doesn't everybody do that? Come on, everybody does that to some extent. Yeah, of course, awkward things one of, the, one of the nice things, and it's something that, uh, you know, is good, is that a lot of people, when their kids are diagnosed with, with autism, they think, oh, no, what's my child's future? But it's nice to be able to demonstrate that I have a successful career, that I'm happily married, that I have loads of friends, I have interesting hobbies, that, you know, it's perfectly possible to live a very happy and successful life and be autistic. Um, but that's, that's, you know, as long as you have around you the kind of what, what you need. And because I was 
my parents haven't been diagnosed, but I strongly suspect my parents are both autistic. I was raised in a household that was very autism friendly. And as a result, I didn't suffer from a lot of the feelings of exclusion that probably people, autistic people who are raised by um, autistic parents or what we neurotypical, the, the language is kind of shifting there, but um, maybe would feel misunderstood or excluded in a way that I didn't experience because my parents also like to sort buttons into rows. <laughs> That's a perfectly normal childhood behavior in my household. <laughs> Do you find that politics then um, in Holyrood, Scottish politics is, is, is uh, not conducive, is not the right word, but is kind of autism friendly? Um, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, mean, I haven't been there very long. So I was only elected in May and we were there six weeks before it went into recess. So I, I wouldn't say that I know um, much about how it functions. I mean, I'm coming from a corporate background, but I worked in software engineering and control systems. My specialism was control systems and instrumentation. So working with a lot of software people, a lot of engineers who have a tendency to be a bit on the spectrum anyway. So like I'm coming from, if you like, an autism friendly industry. Um, in terms of people who can sit in front of a computer and make sense of really long columns of numbers and stuff. So, you know, it was an environment I always felt at home in, but I think I'm just finding my feet in Parliament. And I'm very lucky that we have within our MSP group, huge amounts of experience and in our staff group. And to be honest, I have found speaking with cross-party colleagues, people are friendly, they're intelligent, they're hardworking, they're exactly, they care a lot. They're exactly the kind of people that I like and respect. So, I mean, so far, it's been a wonderful experience. Even the Tories? Well, I haven't had much to do with them, to be fair. They have said some <laughs> rather unkind things about me, it has to be said. But anyway. What sort of thing? What are the lentil-eating watermelon? Oh, well, this week we're extremists, and I'm dangerous. Uh, I'm, I'm very dangerous. Was it Andrew Neil said he thought I was quite bright or something, but that makes me even more dangerous. That's me. Dangerous. Also, quite bright <laughs> is kind of... It's half a compliment. <laughs> but it's like the news can't decide whether we're actually feeble and ineffective or really dangerous and we're going to be super effective. So, And which is it? I think we'll be somewhere in between. I think we'll be quite effective. Quite effective and a quite little bit effective. dangerous. <laughs> that's, our, that's our new slogan. Quite effective, a little bit dangerous. I like it, actually. We should totally go with that. Lorna, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. It's lovely to meet you. Well, there you go, Lorna Slater. It'd be fascinating to see um, how their relationship, the Scottish Greens and the SNP relationship, uh, plays out in the coming months and years and where the fault lines may or may not appear. Uh, don't forget, the political party is returning to the stage the 27th of September with Andy Burnham, the 11th of October with Penny Morden. It's every um, fortnight. I'm about to announce the guests for the 25th of October. If you want to know who the guests are, by the way, just check the website, mattford.com slash live. The 8th of November, Anas Sawa. The 22nd of November, Anthony the Mooch Scaramucci. The 6th of December, Jeremy Hunt. So it is a cracking... Every single one of those is going to be a great night out. Um... And of course, you can come to them all. You don't just have to come to one or two. Um, so hopefully I will see that. I can't wait to be back doing it regularly. I've really missed it. Those three specials we did a few months ago were fantastic. And the Duchess Theatre, if you've not been in the West End, is great. So hopefully I'll see you all there. Thank you for downloading this. Please do leave a review on iTunes. Tell other people about it. Share it on your social media. And I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. 